Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. And today I'm going to talk about the art of spiritual healing. During this last week, uh, a dear friend, uh, somebody in one of my groups, called and told me that she has cancer. And we talked about what she's going through. We talked mostly about her working with fear. After we got off the, the Zoom call and I started thinking about it, I realized that we hadn't really talked about healing. And in certain traditions, going into the deepest meditation or going into non-duality, we don't even have to call it meditation probably, is is considered the most potent healing practice. It's slightly difficult to talk about this because the language associated with talking about healing from the standpoint of theistic Christianity, for instance, and the non-theistic, more Buddhist approach is a very different language. And I'm going to try to weave these back and forth between the two of them. So first of all, it's important to very clearly distinguish between healing and curing. Curing means you have an illness and your body's going to get better. Healing means you're becoming more whole. Certainly, healing can facilitate the curing process, but it will not always do that. Sometimes healing means you're going to die. You're going to die from a place of wholeness. Sometimes healing means your illness or your emotional imbalance or your relationship will get better, right? In Tibetan medicine and in Chinese medicine, the causes of illness are thought to be very complex. It can be a mixture of spiritual, genetic, environmental, a virus, karma. And I was around Maharaji, my guru, for a long time, as well as that. There are so many stories about him healing people. And sometimes he would heal people and they would get better. And sometimes he would people... He would heal people and they would die. I remember one time the story goes that two people came to Maharaji and said, our master, uh, the guy that hires us, is, is close to death and he's your loving devotee. He's asked us to come to you and get your blessing so that he will, will not die. And Maharaji said, well, I don't know if that's possible. And they begged him and Maharaji said, okay, take this banana and feed it to him, and he will be okay. So they took the banana very, very gingerly and preciously and mashed it up and gave the guy the banana. And as he ate the last bite of the banana, he died. Where there were many other stories of people not eating the banana, but something else, blessing was received, and they didn't die. Maybe the karma is to die. And in fact, there's a story about the, the poet Kabir, whose son had these powers, but was not very fully spiritually developed. And he, he brought to life a dead person. 
and Kabir was very upset. He said, now the house of Kabir is ruined because that person was not supposed to be brought back to life. So when we're talking about healing, it's, it's a delicate conversation because often what we want healed is the place where we're most caught. If the doctor tells you you have cancer and you think about healing, you're probably thinking about how can I make the cancer go away? It might karmically be the case that now is your time to die. The relationship between karma and healing and curing is a, a complex one and a delicate one, and we're going to be dancing around that. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a, a practice beyond meditation called Dzogchen. In Hinduism, it's called Advaita Vedanta, of resting in the non-dual. And the Tibetans feel that the most powerful healing practice, if someone is a meditator, is to go into this place of non-duality and just rest there. And in fact, one time I was at a workshop and I can't remember if I asked the question or somebody else did and I just remembered the answer, but somebody asked that this Tibetan Lama, if you're with somebody who's approaching dying, what is the most uh, powerful healing thing you can do for them? And the Lama said, merge your mind with the one mind and then merge your mind with the mind of your friend. Merge your mind with the one mind and merge your mind with the mind of your friend. As an example, I injured my neck at a Ramdas retreat a long time ago. It's a whole long story, but <laughs> I was at a retreat with Ramdas and Stephen Levine and Jay Utal and Wavy Gravy, and everybody's getting the flu. Uh, and Wavy Gravy said, Why don't you go to this chiropractor? He'll, he'll, just perk you up a little bit and maybe you won't get the flu like everybody else is getting. And I went to this chiropractor down in Yucca Valley and the guy threw me around his office by my neck. And ever since that time, I've had these stretched out ligaments in my neck and my neck is really hypermobile. So my neck is always going out, which I don't mind the pain, but it interferes with the neurological ability to concentrate and relax, which for a meditation teacher is a very interesting predicament. I'm a great connoisseur of neck fixers, chiropractors, osteopaths, etc. And I had this guy who became a friend of mine, Dr. Ed. I've mentioned him to a few people in the room here. Dr. Ed was a really good osteopath, a cranial osteopath. And eventually he moved from the East Bay down to Los Angeles. But he would come back to Albany in the East Bay to treat people every few weeks. So I called him up once and said, hey, Ed, my neck is out. Are you going to be in town this week? And he said, no, but I can treat you over the telephone. And I said, no, I don't think I want to pay you $100 to treat me over the telephone. And I gritted my teeth and dealt with it. And, but then a few months later, the same thing happened. And Dr. Ed, I called him up and he said, once again, I'm not going to be in town, but I can treat you over the phone. And I said, okay. So he said, what I want you to do is tomorrow at 10 o'clock, just lie in your bed for half an hour. I'll call you up at 10, just to remind you, and just lie there for half an hour. 
So I was quite uh, doubtful about this, and I did that. I lay in my bed, and at the end of half an hour, my neck was fine. My energy felt like it had been washed and balanced, and I felt incredible. So I started seeing Dr. Ed over, uh, virtually over, the, over the, the telephone, or not even over the phone. And finally, as we became better friends and we'd eat meals together and stuff when he was in town, I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, what I do is I just go into wholeness and then I see you as whole and I hang out there for half an hour. And I thought, well, why am I paying him $100 to do that? Why don't I do that myself? And most of the time I can do that. I can go into deep meditation, just lie down and let my body relax. And most of the time my body re rearranges itself. Another story is that one time I was teaching a workshop outside of uh, Vancouver, Seattle, in those islands, the Gulf Islands, the San Juan Islands, depending on what side of the border you're on. And during the workshop, I would meet people outside uh, as like the meditation teacher, and they would come to me for an interview. And I was under a tree uh, that had this low-hanging branch. And after the interview with one person, I stood up and stood up right into a, a branch, just completely knocked my neck into spasm and great pain. So somebody knew of this old chiropractor on another island, and we got on the sailboat and drove over there. And there's this really old, beautiful guy. And we came into the room, myself and the pilot of the sailboat and my, my friend, and we started talking. And I said, wait a minute, my neck is okay. And the guy said, yeah, I treated you as you walked in the door. And he treated the other two people, too. <laughs> so he was doing the same thing that Dr. Ed was doing. He didn't even have to touch somebody to heal them. In Chinese medicine, there are four levels of healing. The grossest level of healing is you invade somebody's body. You do surgery, you put needles in their body. The next level, the grossest level, is touching somebody, massaging them, touching their body. The next most subtle level is talking to somebody. But the most subtle level of healing is that your energy heals the other person. And that's essentially the function of the guru at the highest level. There is a difference, at least in degree, of healing somebody from having uh, their neck vertebrae rearranged and having somebody with cancer. But let me tell you another story or two here. When I was running the dying center in Santa Fe, I got a phone call that there was a woman who was dying in the hospital. She didn't medically need to be in the hospital. They wanted to discharge her, but there was an argument in the family about where she was going to go. And could she come and stay at the dying center? So I said, well, why don't we talk about it? I came into the hospital she had a throat cancer. And in fact, her doctor had said three days before these that she had 10 days or less to live. She wanted to go home. She, she didn't want to go home to the ranch where she lived with her husband in western Texas, just east of Santa Fe. She wanted to stay with her sister in, in Santa Fe. But the husband and the sister didn't get along. And if the husband was too irritated by this whole thing. He could screw things up financially. So everybody was all upset about it. And I said, well, what about if she stayed at the sister's house 
and the husband can come and visit and I will be her, her guide. I'll come as if she were staying at my house. So the next day I came to her house and I said, well, what do you want? She said, I don't want to die. And she had this tumor in her throat that was inoperable, that was, was beginning to suffocate her. And I said, tell, you, tell, tell me about your life. And she said, I really hate my husband. He's a, he's a really a bad guy. I'll fall down. I'm so weak. And he'll laugh at me. He won't even help me to get up. I said, what you need to do is you need to forgive your husband. And she literally said, why should I forgive that son of a bitch after all that he's done to me? And I said, because you really don't want to, you really need to forgive your husband because you want to get well and there's so much energy tied up in hating him. And even if you're going to die, dying hating somebody doesn't, uh, is not the best thing for obvious reasons. So we did a guided forgiveness meditation and I, I got her to say, George, I forgive you. George, I forgive you. It's not his real name, but George, I forgive you. She did it with great reluctance and I said, I, Promise me that you'll do this twice a day and I'll come back tomorrow. And she said, don't come tomorrow. I'll call you when I'm ready. Three days go by. Remember, she's got 10 days to live six days ago now. Uh, the phone doesn't ring, so I call up the house. Her sister, I said, how's your sister? Her sister says, you wouldn't believe it. But yesterday, the doctor came, looked into her throat and said, your tumor's completely gone. It's a miracle. I don't understand it. And she got on the plane and went to Hawaii, and six months later, she was still fine. Once again, a very small sample size. She wasn't resting in non-duality, but at least she was opening up enough to go beyond what was really uh, a deep grasping at something. And going into non-duality is letting go of the grasping at being a separate being. If we go beyond feeling separate, if we rest in God's presence, if we can rest in non-duality, if there is any karmic possibility that healing will happen, that is giving it the that is giving it the 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 chance to happen. So we're we're taking this a step beyond the the tantric understanding. In tantra, there is the understanding that mind creates reality. In Buddhist Tantra and Hindu Tantra, it is the mind that creates the brain, not the brain that creates the mind. And modern quantum mechanics has proven mathematically that there is not an objective, separable reality, solid reality out there, that consciousness is creating reality. We are creating reality moment to moment to moment rather than perceiving a solid objective reality. Now, beginning to explore these ideas has the possibility of creating what I call new age guilt. You're a meditator, you've got a, a rearranged neck, or you have cancer, or uh, you have financial insecurity, and you think, well, if I do what Dale's talking about here, and I go into non-duality, and then you do that and your finances, finances or your neck or your, your cancer cells don't rearrange in the way you would like, it's very probable that you will consider getting really guilty that you're not doing it right. Once again, there is this 
sticky quality of karma that is in the middle of all this. And I remember there was a guy that came to Maharaji once and said, Maharaji, I need money. Can you give me the blessing of money? And he said, I'm sorry, I can't. Your karma is to not have money. And when we were with Maharaji, he gave a number of Westerners a piece of money, like a 10 rupee note or something like that. And everybody that he gave money to has ended up being very wealthy. He didn't give me money. <laughs> he gave me another blessing, which I'm not going to reveal what it was. And it's it has flourished in the way that he said it would. But fortunately for me, I guess, hopefully, it's, it's not having the money thing happening. There's a, a wonderful book called The Art of Spiritual Healing, by a guy named Joel Goldsmith, who uh, was one of those old-fashioned Christians from the 1940s and 50s. I'm going to read two paragraphs from his book. It, it's a Christian language. It's I've kind of cleaned up some of the patriarchal pronouns a bit. If you're not into Christianity or theism, uh, we're going to still translate this into non-dual language, but I think it's really very provocative what he has to say here. Rather than praying to God for something, rejoice in presence, letting that be your prayer, seeking nothing for yourself, seeking nothing for anyone else, and never relegating God to the role of a servant meant to do your will or satisfy your desires. Understand that our function is to be the servant of God, glorifier of God. Change the nature of your prayer so that you are not trying to get a great big God to do a little tiny you a favor. Understand that we are here to be the instrument through which God appears and acts on earth, instead of letting God speak to them to make people speak to God, telling, asking, directing, even commanding and that is why there is no response. God is not some great power who will do something to the negative powers of sin, disease, lack, and limitation if you contact him or her. And he goes on to talking about how the world is an illusion. When somebody asked Maharaji, is the world really, says it's completely real, it's completely an illusion, and it's both. So here's the second paragraph for Joel, uh, from Joel Goldsmith, which I think is the heart of the matter here, if you will. As you move about this world, inevitably aware of its frustrations and tragedies, never treat anyone or any condition. Never. It is the claim that is presented to you that receives the treatment. And that claim is always the belief in the selfhood or conditions separate and apart from God. So he's saying, you don't treat the neck that's out. You treat the, the part of Dale that believes he has a neck that's out, that feels he's separate from wholeness. Whenever any belief intrudes itself upon your thought, you must do something about it, not something to the person or the condition, but only to the claim as it presents itself to your thought. When you see what looks like deformity, insanity, or an accident, go within. Feel the divine peace of God's presence. Every specific claim that presents itself to you has to be met in your consciousness. Not only when people ask you for help, 
but whenever you observe a need, when you pass by the beggar on the street, to not just let him be there, physically you may pass him by, but spiritually lift him up to the truth of being. When you look out at the world and see persons or circumstances claiming to have power over you for good or evil, you again must acknowledge that your being is in Christ and only the Christ-inspired can have influence in your affairs. I think that's really incredibly provocative. Maharaji said, it is a mistake to treat by individual differences. In other words, he said, see everybody the same. I mean, here's one person who's got this problem, here's one person that got that problem, and you can get very busy trying to fix all these little problems, but instead, can you see everybody as whole? One time, Ramdas came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, I feel so impure, I, I feel so impure, and Maharaji looked up his sleeve and said, I see no impurity. So imagine being in a relationship with somebody who didn't see any impurity in you. Imagine being in a relationship with yourself where you didn't see any impurity in yourself. You still might get the flu, you still might get COVID, you still might have your neck go out, you still might uh, have whatever happens. I mean, Ramakrishna died of cancer, Raman Maharshi died of cancer, Maharaji died of a heart attack. Everybody dies, everybody dies of something, right? People get sick. You have a body, those things happen. You have a body, there's pain, there's disease, there's old age, there's death. But there doesn't need to be pulling back from wholeness. Healing is the movement into wholeness. Someone came to Ramana Maharshi and said, I hear you're a great healer. And Ramana said, I don't know what you're talking about. And the man said, I'm new here, but many people have told me that you're a great healer. And Ramana said, no, no, I'm not a great healer. And they went back and forth for a while. And somebody, one of Ramana Maharshi's devotees, Ramana being a great teacher of non-duality, one of the great saints of the 20th century, his devotee came and said, Ramana, what he's saying is that healing happens through you. And Ramana said, yes, oh, healing happens through me, but I'm not a healer. He was so disidentified with I'm the healer, that there is an I who is here to heal you, that he was confused when the guy accused him of being a healer. As much as you or I are in this room together trying to figure out how we could heal ourselves, in some way we're 180 degrees from the truth. We're often approaching healing exactly from the place where we are most attached and where surrender is the most difficult, where there's a life-threatening illness or financial insecurity or lack of relationship or broken relationship. So we're coming to this group, we're coming to spiritual practice to fix something. And as long as we have the view that there's stuff to be fixed, then we've got a problem. <laughs> Something's broken here. <laughs> okay. So in Dzogchen, the, the, the practice or the non-practice more uh, accurately, Dzogchen in, in this Tibetan way of moving into, into non-duality is to first look 
look directly at the nature of things, not the content, not that my neck is up, but what is the nature of things? Is there a wholeness here? I'm looking at wholeness. And then the next step is C, you let go of the looker. There's just seeing, you're just rest, and then you rest. Look, see, stay. You're staying in non-duality, in presence, in Christ consciousness, in Buddha nature, in your nature. No effort, nothing to do, nothing broken. And then if you attach again, if you grab onto something, you liberate that. You just see it, see again for what it is. Just like Joel Goldsmith was saying, you're not treating the condition, you're treating the claim that there is even something to do. Merge your mind with the one mind and then merge your mind with the client, the friend. This is tricky business. I mean, people take this idea and there is a whole gospel of prosperity consciousness. And people say, if you think about the world in the right way, money will come to you. But it's, it's very difficult to approach prosperity consciousness without some hook of greed, of grasping in there, right? If, in fact, you were totally non-attached to money, that you trusted that God would take care of that aspect, then prosperity consciousness would be there. But almost everybody coming to this gospel of prosperity is wanting something, needing something. Everything is possible by God's name. Love is the most powerful medicine, stronger than electricity, Maharaji said. There is an intelligent consciousness. So, we've been talking for many weeks about all the things that prevent us from doing this. We've talked about embodied mindfulness, grounding, centering, compassion, working with fear, working with difficult emotions all the different ways of working with the places where we are grasping, are we, where we are attached, where we're not surrendered into the sense of wholeness. But eventually, and I think my, my conversation with this such dear person, friend of mine, who just found out she has cancer, it kind of inspired me, okay, how much... preparatory work do we have to do? When can we finally say, okay, it's time to take that leap into wholeness? Once again, my favorite quote of all time, Suzuki Roshi, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? Is this surrender into wholeness again and again, rather than than trying to fix all the the broken pieces in non-duality? All the people that come through our lives who are, who are broken, who are uh, needy, who are angry, who are violent. I mean, the whole political thing in our country, the whole society in, in that sense is such a mess. So that what is beneath all those patterns? Is there a wholeness beneath those patterns that we can surrender into? Maharaji's whole teaching, as summarized by Ramdas, was... Love, serve, remember. All you've got to do is love everybody, serve the people that come to you with need, and remember God. Love, serve, remember. Three things which amount to the same thing. Loving people doesn't mean fixing them. There's still fierce compassion. Resting in non-duality doesn't mean that there isn't fierce compassion and saying no and, and diving in and dealing with the mess of the world. 
but it's coming from a very different place. It's coming from a place of wholeness rather than a place of anger or a place of need or a place of frustration. So imagine right now that we're in relationship, you and me, and me and me and you and you. We're in relationship that's whole, that there's no need, that we trust what it says in the Bible, that God's taking care of everything. He's taking care of the sparrows and the lilies and everybody. Of course, he's taking care of us, but we don't really believe that in the marrow of our bones. I see no impurity. When somebody's dying, are they choosing between life and death or are they choosing healing, right? So people would come to the Living Dying Project or they'd be reluctant to come to the Living Dying Project more than likely because they thought if we're talking about dying, that means I'm moving toward dying. And the longer I've done this work, it's not about helping people die better. It's about healing so that you can accept what is and surrender into wholeness and still do things like going to the doctor. I'm not saying that you don't go to the chiropractor, you don't go to the doctor, or you don't, you don't exercise, you just let everything be the way it is. But that you are acting not from a place of there's a problem here, you're acting from a place of wholeness and responding in a holistic way. And even holistic medicine has a great big hole in it. The hole in holistic medicine is fear of death. That in holistic medicine, people are substituting surgery and chemotherapy with herbs and, and uh, visualizations and things. And it's, it's, it's still, it's pushing death away very often. So that it's working with that place in you that's feeling there is a solid eye that has a solid problem with a solid part of my body. And to the extent that you can accept this moment fully, then out of that will come a decision of are there curing modalities that I, that I want to go to. So I've been practicing this last week, and it's been, I, I don't know how to say this without being uh, very personal, so maybe I'll just do it anyway. But I've been, I've been practicing with a few friends of uh, seeing them as whole. And there are people that say, well, my life is really frustrating right now. This thing isn't working out and that thing isn't working out. And can you help me figure out how to fix things? And instead of doing that, I'm just like seeing the part of them that doesn't have any problems and, and kind of, uh, just loving them. And it's like, it's so nurturing for me or if there's a me there. I mean, it, it doesn't even feel, it's just like, it's completely spacious. It's like all the problems in the world are just like uh, tiny little clouds in the vast sky of mind. Mm -hmm. and, and these people feel, I think, at least at times, reporting, feeling really connected and heard and met rather than I'm here to fix you. Let's try to figure out A, B, and C what to do here. Um, Deb, this is Susie. Good morning. I have a, a question regarding loving and serving and remembering. When you're doing those things, are you doing them in wholeness or duality? Because it, it seems to me that you're helping people. Now, I can rest in wholeness when I meditate, 
But when I'm out there, out there, it would be more of a service. So I'm a little confused there. How would you apply wholeness to service? Okay. Well, there's, a, there's this wonderful quote uh, that Hanuman supposedly said. Hanuman is the Hindu deity that is the symbol of selfless service. And he was talking to Ram, and he said, Ram, when I forget who I am, I love you and I serve you. But when I remember who I am, I am you. And it is much easier to rest in wholeness when you're meditating than when you're talking to somebody or being with somebody who's saying, please help me. When, when we're with another human being, particularly somebody that we love, I mean, imagine Linda being with her son who was dying for, what was it, 20 months you said you were taking care of him. And just his very being was, was asking her, please help me. So that that's one of the most difficult situations to rest in non-duality because our personality gets involved in the, the part of me that needs to do something. It is possible, Susie, to be doing both of these at the same time or being both of these things at the same time more accurately, that can we begin to integrate the wholeness that you experience at times in meditation into being with another human being? And that's, that's what I've been playing with a lot this last week, of being with uh, uh, friends and, and resting in non-duality. And the things that come out of my mouth are rather amazing to me even, rather than I'm here and I'm wise and I've got all this information and I'm here to fix you. And it's, it's integrating practice into life or integrating non-practice into life, however you want to talk about that. We don't have to choose between the two. We, we have to begin to explore the possibility of resting in that place all of the time, all the time, right now. Even though your mind might be saying, this is really interesting stuff, I've got to collect it. I've got to put it in my mental to-do list or my mental workbook or keep notes here. Can you instead be trusting this surrender into spaciousness? And every time the mind grabs on into this place of attachment, just the slightest effort needed to fall back into openness. And that just that it, it, it gets to be less and less effort in just resting in openness, in, in, in Buddha nature, not seeing impurity. I mean, we're going to have another election cycle coming up. Big challenge is going to be there, right? There's going to be, and then in another three years, there's going to be a, a presidential election three years from now. Uh, I was just reading today that Trump is, is planning to run again, right? So that can we, can we think about that? Can we be involved in that and not see impurity? Big challenge. I've told this story before, but a couple of stories. So that there's this wonderful teacher, Milarepa. He's maybe the, the most famous Tibetan practitioner of all time, other than Padmasambhava himself. He wrote the 100,000 songs of Milarepa. I'm sure he didn't call it that, but anyway, he wrote all these songs about non-duality. And Milarepa was somebody who 
when he was younger, he had parents, they had land and property and wealth. His father died and his relatives, his uncle, stole the patrimony. They, they stole the property from him and his mother. And he got angry. He practiced black magic. He created this storm that killed his uncles. And after that, he felt great remorse because he, he thought, I've killed people. I'll never get enlightened this lifetime. I need to find a teacher who can uh, bring me to enlightenment, even though I've killed people. So he traveled through Tibet finding these wonderful teachers, but nobody felt they could help him because he'd killed somebody. He finally found this guy, Marpa, Marpa the translator. And I was thinking of Marpa because one of the stories about Marpa is that Marpa was this great teacher of non-duality, what we're talking about here today. And one day Marpa's son was unexpectedly killed. His young son was killed in a farming accident. And Marpa started weeping and weeping and weeping. And one of his students came and said, Marpa, you've said life is an illusion. Why are you crying? And he said, life is an illusion, but the death of one's child is the greatest of all illusions. Okay, so then Milarepa comes to Marpa and said, I want your teaching. I want to get enlightened. And Marpa says, well, you're not ready. You need to work in the kitchen. So Marpa's teaching all the other students these great teachings, but he won't teach them to Milarepa. For 12 years, he kept them in the kitchen doing really menial stuff. Uh, and part of the time, he took them out and put them on the side of this hill and said, these big boulders here, I want you to move them around so that on that side of the hill, build a house made out of these boulders, a round house on the east side of the hill. And Marpa did that. Uh, Milarepa did that, and when he got all done, Marpa said, you know, I've been thinking about it. I'd rather have a square house on the west side of the hill. Move those boulders over there. And he spent years moving these boulders around. He had open sores on his shoulders. And finally, after 12 years of all this stuff, Marpa said, now you're ready for the teaching. And he gave him the teaching. Milarepa went off into, a, into the mountains he practiced with the intensity and motivation that came from the, those 12 years, and he achieved enlightenment. So you're not asked to carry boulders around, but we're carrying our own metaphorical boulders around, each one of us. We're, 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 we're being forced to look at our karma, what's going on in this moment, to the point where we're ready to receive the teaching. The teaching is quite simple. It's profound, it's deep, it's simple, but it's it takes great intention to bring it into moment-to-moment -moment life when Donald Trump might be president and when people's children are dying, when doctors are telling people that you have cancer and all these things are happening. I fall back on Ramdas's quote, suffering is grace. The place where you are suffering is the place that's calling to you to let go, to trust, to surrender. And if you need to meditate to be more clear in noticing that place, if you need to do yoga to relax your body enough that emotions don't overwhelm you, if you need to go to therapy, so that you begin to understand the roots of things and 
not be be uh, dominated by patterns that have been there for so long. There are so many different techniques to getting to the point where one can begin to do what we're talking about. I still can't do this all the time, right? I've been meditating for 50 years. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking about something that's that's ideal, that's that's true, and that I can do more and more. You know, there's still things that bother me, right? Uh, and can I can I be honest about my propensity to be bothered? Can I admit to myself that I still think there's a Dale who uh, is becoming Ramdev? There's still a Dale who needs fixing. Uh, or is there nothing that needs to be fixed? Is it okay to be neurotic? Is it okay to have a finite body? I'd like to be taller. I'd like to be. I'd like to be happier. I'd like you know, all these things, right? And uh, I'm not. But is there a wholeness? Is there a joy that goes beyond happiness and sadness? Can I can I maintain that joy in being with? A lot of people who are dying, which is my life's work. Trust God, love, love everybody, love yourself, serve people when they need it, but serve people, as Susie's question is implying, serve people from a sense of wholeness, not being codependent, not seeing people, going back to that Joel Goldsmith quote of, you're not treating, you're not serving the 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 problem you're treating the place where people think there is a problem you're taking it one step back with other people and with yourself wherever you think there's a problem who is it that thinks there's a problem who is that guy that's the illusion so once again the function of the guru is being in a relationship with somebody who keeps seeing you as whole even when you see yourself as stuck. There is a practice called Guru Yoga where you visualize this being of wholeness, Christ, the mother, Maharaji, Hanuman, or it can just be some generic being. You don't have to have a, have to have a personal relationship with something, but some, some representation of complete wholeness and you, you visualize this in front of you. And you go beyond just visualizing. You begin to be affected by this embodiment of wholeness and love and compassion and wisdom. You're feeling what it's like to be in the presence of that. And then slowly, slowly, slowly you feel that you're being purified, that out of the heart of this other being comes a ray of golden light into you that's purifying you, that your substance then is being made out of exactly the same substance as this, as the guru. The guru is made out of pure consciousness. Every cell radiating with pure consciousness. Every cell of you radiating with pure consciousness. And then slowly, 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 your body and this body merge into one body you still aren't as tall as you'd like to be. 
<laughs> right? But you, you've merged with the body of the guru, right? Or, right? or your nose is still too big or you know, whatever it is, right? <laughs> or you got, you've got pimples on your neck or something and still there you are merged with it, with, with this, with pure consciousness. And then you hang out there as long as you hang out there until you begin to get attached to this other set of ideas, some other set of ideas. Uh, another, uh, what can, how can I say this? Another insight I had this week is that partly because of these groups and classes and things I teach, I've been spending a lot of time in my own practice and with other people of working with the first four, four chakras, getting grounded, getting centered, uh, opening my heart. But there's also going up into the head and up above the head. There's also the truth of Tantra, the, the, and there's, there's, there's wholeness. And that you can spend your whole life doing practices to prepare you to get somewhere and when does the time come just to realize you're there already, <laughs> if you know what I mean? I mean, can you rest in all the chakras at the same time? Can you, can you be in that wholeness right now? And you are in that wholeness. It's not finding wholeness. It's not creating wholeness. It's admitting. It's, it's admitting what is here. So that for many people, going back to Susie's question, which I think is really a wonderful one, how do we bring, how do we merge service and wholeness? And when you're resting in wholeness, you feel more acutely the suffering of other people. You, you feel the woundedness and you feel it acutely in yourself when it, when it reappears. So that, that that motivates us to keep coming back to this surrender. I mean, the, the, the boundless suffering in this world can be the motivation for resting in that which is beyond suffering. Suffering is grace. Suffering is only suffering. Suffering is attachment. Suffering is believing in an illusion of separateness. We are not separate. 